But before we start, let's pray. Father, we come to you because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We come to your scripture because we know that it is from you and you use it to shape us and to grow us. Forgive me, Lord, for my inabilities to speak from the scriptures and forgive us, Lord, for our inabilities to hear from the scriptures. Help us to quiet our souls now, to come before you, to receive from your word. And through the scriptures, we pray that we might be trained in righteousness. All glory be to God. Amen. Well, today's sermon is supposed to be the part two of the sermon that uh, I did three weeks ago. And as three weeks has elapsed, um, we will just do a, a quick recap So three weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes. We're not looking at them in depth this morning. Um, Kylie kindly read them this morning just as a a way of refresher because some of that will flow into uh, today's sermon. Um, But a few things that we picked up on last time that will flow into today's sermon. First, we noted Jesus' location. He didn't preach this sermon in the main cities. He preached it out in the wilderness, and he preached it to those who had followed him out into the wilderness. The content of this sermon is first and foremost applied to the lives of those who would follow Jesus. For you and me who call Christ as Lord, this sermon is ripe with personal application. This is not a sermon to help you lament the world, but this is a sermon to help you lament yourself. And as we read through God's definition of righteousness, we come to grieve how far short we fall of that. It strips away... the the external religious observance and and the pious facade that we can sometimes put on. This is a sermon about what ought to be normative for the subjects of the kingdom of heaven. That is normative for those of us who profess Christ as king. Last sermon, we examined the Beatitudes. We talked about what they were and how they apply to the life of a Christ follower. And the Beatitudes, as we saw, read, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, Blessed are those who... uh, Sorry, blessed are those, blessed are those. And then finally, it gets down to verse verse 11 where it reads, Blessed are you when... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus wasn't pronouncing a universal blessing on all who sat there listening to him that day. And he doesn't pronounce a universal blessing on all who walked through a church door this morning and listened to a sermon but he pronounces a blessing on those of us who had put the scriptures into practice. And this carries forward to the coming verse about being salt and light. You are the salt of, uh, sorry, you are the salt of the earth. It's not all you who hear this sermon, far less is it you, you humanity are the salt of the earth, globally speaking. No, it's you who, as James would put it, it's you who after hearing the words, then put them into practice. Those who practice righteousness Righteousness as defined by the preceding verses and the verses that follow, righteousness as Jesus defined it, as God defines it, it is those who practice this righteousness, they are salt and light. And that was as far as we got last week as we uh, sort of took a a peek into verses 13 and 16. So we're going to pick up from verses 13 to 16 today. We're going to be looking back a little bit into the Beatitudes and we're hopefully... God willing, also going to cover verses 17 to 20 as well. Unless, of course, I go too long and everyone hops up and leaves. Um, 
As we launch from the Beatitudes, two things become apparent. First, the person who practices these will be very other. They'll be very different from the world that surrounds them. The second thing is that on occasion we'll be persecuted because of this otherness, indeed persecuted because of our righteousness. To an unrighteous world, righteousness is offensive. So you're sitting on the mount listening to Jesus and you've just heard that you'll be persecuted purely because of your righteousness. What are you going to do? Well, a sensible, sensible approach might be to board up the shop, pack your bags and head for the hills, right? You can go up there, you can escape from society at large and you can start an isolated little Christian community where you all live hidden away from the world in, in Christian utopia. To some, this sort of approach might seem adventurous and idyllic, but perhaps to most of it, it just seems a little bit far-fetched. But it's not as far-fetched as you would think. This was the driving idea behind the 6th century monastic movement, where where monks retreated from society in order to maintain the distinctiveness of their faith. Rod Dreher recently published a book entitled The Benedict Option, where he argues that the progressive decline in Western morality has placed us in in such a tenuous position where the only option really left is a tactical retreat. And and a bunch of the stuff he says in the book is actually quite useful. Um, But whatever the state of Western society, this is ultimately, this is the wrong strategy because it's not the battle plan that our king has endorsed. Jesus was aware that we would be both different and persecuted because of being different, but he doesn't call us to retreat. Christ is not in retreat. Christ said he is building his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And he promises us that as our righteousness draws the ire of the world, so our righteousness will also be a blessing to the world. Do you ever feel like it's all been for nothing? You've been trying to shine your light but the darkness doesn't seem to have retreated. You've been trying to be salt in your context, but the decay around you continues. There is a promise in this scripture for you. It is at these times that we are reminded of the words of Jesus, and he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Concerning light and salt, um, many would be aware that salt was used both as a preservative and as a flavour enhancer. And as we put on Christ, we become the salt of the earth. The world becomes a better place merely by our presence and involvement in it. It may not always feel like this, but it is always true. Further, we are the light of the world. Now, light doesn't need any great explanation, does it? We all appreciate light. There's no wonder that the electric light bulb is considered one of the greatest inventions of all time. And so much so do we appreciate light that uh, perhaps with the advent of the electric light bulb, it's actually somewhat rare to experience true darkness. But if you hop in your car and you drive out west far enough, you get beyond all the towns and townships. And then you stand out there on a cloudy night where you can't see the stars and the moon, then you'll start to appreciate what true darkness is. I remember uh, such a night in the Northern Territory. I was on a cattle property. Uh, I know nothing about cattle. Um, I'll I'll put that out there. But uh, I'd walked some way away from the house uh, just to explore with my torch. And then I turned my torch off and I waited for my eyes to acclimatise so I could make out the silhouette of the horizon or a tree or something. 
And then after a, wheel, a while, I realized that my eyes had acclimatized, but I couldn't make out anything. I couldn't make out the horizon. I couldn't make out my feet, far less the path that I'd taken to get there. And I, I couldn't even make out my hand as I waved it in front of my face. And so I quickly turned my torch back on, and I held my torch quite, uh, quite tightly from that point on. True darkness is a terrifying thing. Yet had I been in the Lockyer Valley, it might have been dark, but even on a cloudy night, I still would have been able to look up and I would have been able to get my bearings because I would have been able to see Toowoomba, a city on a hill. And it's entirely possible that I still might have been able to see something of the path as the light from Toowoomba shone down into the valley and some of it bounced off the very clouds that were partly responsible for the darkness. If you feel like the presence of Christ in you and his sanctifying work in your life is having no effect on the world that you seek to reach, remember, Jesus never promised that the world would not decay, but he does promise that you will be salt. He never promised that the world would not be dark, but he does promise that you will be a beacon in that darkness. So there's a promise in this passage, and it's a very beautiful promise. Um, it's an encouragement for those of us who, who seek to follow the way of Christ. But there's also a warning here for those who feel that righteousness is optional. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. But someone might think, you know what, I think it's also blessed to be rich in spirit. I'd love to be just a little bit carefree and happy, and I'd just like a taster of that. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. But someone might say, well, you know what, I think it's also blessed to be kind of light-hearted and, and carefree. Meekness, some might say. Meekness, I think that was yesterday's flavour. Mercy is a privilege that I extend only to my friends. And, and peacemaking, well, peacemaking is all well and good, uh, as long as I don't get hurt. Altogether, someone might say, altogether, righteousness is a very good thing. But it's such a big ask. I think I'm going to put it off till January 2024, and I'm going to make a really good go of it then. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There's a really pertinent warning here. Jesus is calling his subjects, the citizens of the kingdom, he is calling them to be dramatically different to the citizens of the world. It's going to be difficult, but he gives us his spirit to affect such change in our life. It's going to be difficult, but do not abandon the call of Christ. Do not conform to the norms of the world. Do not go down that path, not even for a season. As it says, how shall you be restored? Before moving on, uh, it's worth noting that some people object to this verse. How can salt lose its saltiness, they ask. I remember having this objection. I remember sitting in a Bible study group in my late teens. Uh, I had a, a 12th grade understanding of chemistry, so I knew everything, right? And I remember being insistent, salt cannot lose its saltiness. It's what it is. It, it can't not be salty. It's just not possible. Well, the answer could be quite simple, and allow me a little bit of time to unpack it, but salt was mined from rock salt or evaporated out of saline water. Um, most of our salt today comes from the sea and it's, it's pure sodium chloride, but rock salt, unlike our table salt, contains a mixture of, I shouldn't say pure sodium chloride, sea salt is about 90%. Um, rock salt, unlike table salt, contains a mixture of sodium chloride as well as a lot of other salts. And while sea salt is about 90% sodium chloride, 
Um, the Dead Sea, the closest saline body that they had for, for many parts of the country, um, it's unique in that it has much higher concentrations of calcium and magnesium, which is, again is reflected in, in the local rock salts. So much so that this, to my knowledge, is the only part of the globe where there is a, a separate protocol for near drowning victims uh, whereby they involve a renal physician to actually dialyse out the extra calcium and magnesium from their bloodstream. Uh, that's just some medical trivia in there. Um, the salt that they were using is not the table salt that we're familiar with, the pure sodium chloride. Rather, their salt has, has all these other impurities in it. And these other salts, they don't taste salty. And under certain circumstances, the sodium chloride can leach from the stored salt, leaving the calcium and magnesium compounds behind. The salt has now lost its saltiness, and it no longer makes food taste good. In, ta in fact, it's actually quite bitter. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, as I found out, uh, both magnesium and calcium chloride, while they taste awful, they're actually really useful as soil stabilisers. And so they've been used on clay tennis courts for quite some time to improve the surface of clay. And uh, more recently, in the 21st century, there's been a number of engineering papers that have been published about how to use um, particularly calcium chloride as a soil stabiliser before construction begins. I have to wonder whether or not uh, this has something to do with Jesus' suggestion that salt that's lost its saltiness is, is tossed out on dirt paths. Ultimately, it's important to remember that Jesus isn't trying to teach us a chemistry lesson. That's, that's not his point. But the omniscient God is not mocked by chemistry either, particularly not 12th grade chemistry. God created science. Uh, we're going to perhaps return to that a little later on. Okay. So we've seen that there is a promise here. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And there is a warning here. If salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be restored? And now finally, there is a command. Let your light shine. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is a command, and this is, this is such a beautiful command. Do you love God? Do you want to live for his glory? I know that for some of you, this is your very heartbeat. This is what you're on about. And here, God is giving you that opportunity. All glory will be his. But as you manifest the transformation, the work that he is doing in your life, it brings, brings glory to God. You become a part of the narrative that rightly glorifies your creator. God is worthy of all glory. And I trust that you want to be for his glory. And God is blessing you with an opportunity to fulfill your desire. So don't lose your distinctiveness. Don't cover it either. But the command here is to let it shine. Some have taken this command primarily as a call to evangelism. But this definition is far too narrow. We are called to proclaim the gospel, and God is glorified in our proclamation of the gospel. But the context of this passage, the context tells us that this command is a command to live out the Christian life in all its fullness. And such is characterized by the virtues that have just been described in the Beatitudes. This is a call for the citizens of the kingdom to adopt the character and the practices of the kingdom. A final word of clarification. This text is not a justification for parading your own virtue to your own glory. That's not what it's on about. More we said on this when we arrive at chapter 6, 
where Jesus sharply rebukes those who show off their own righteousness or religiosity as a means of propping themselves up. And while it would seem at first that it would be difficult to both display our righteousness, thereby giving glory to our Father, and at the same time, not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, in practice, these, these two things aren't mutually exclusive. I don't know if you've ever held the, the lantern for people while camping. You can hold the lantern quite close to your body, and it's going to illuminate you. You'll obstruct its rays of light, and everyone will see you. But you can also hold the lantern high above your head, and then you're going to shine out far more light for everyone else at the campsite. They're going to see what is around them. But you, being beneath the lantern, will actually be invisible. So let your light shine. We move now to verses 17 to 20, and uh, we might pause to read them again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said these words to reinforce his continuity with the Old Testament. Some, no doubt, perceived that Jesus might be perhaps at loggerheads with the Old Testament. And the Jews, they rightly valued the Old Testament. That was a good thing. Jesus reassures them, I'm not abolishing the law and the prophets, that is, the Old Testament. No, I am fulfilling the Old Testament. Jesus' words reinforce his continuity with the Old Testament because that's what the regional situation required, some will say. And many Jews might reject Jesus if they feel that he contradicts the Old Testament. And Jesus' words are given to correct that error, and that's, that's correct. That's, that's why Jesus gave these words on that occasion. Today, I want to use these words in the reverse direction. And I can because Scripture is not just contextually true. It's not just effectively true. But what is stated as true in Scripture is objectively true. Some of the Jews would reject Jesus because he broke the purity laws, or at least their definition of the purity laws. Some today want to keep Jesus but reject the Old Testament because it prescribed the purity laws. But as these words challenged the first century audience, that if they wanted to accept the Old Testament, they by necessity had to accept Jesus, so these words challenged the 21st century audience, that if they want to accept Jesus, they by necessity need to accept the Old Testament. If it was true that A and B are fulfilled in C, that is the law and the prophets fulfilled in Christ, then it is also true that C is the fulfillment of A and B. Is that true? Is that logical? Can I get a nod of heads? That's good. If it is true that A and B are fulfilled in C, then it is also true that C is the fulfillment of A and B. Uh, we're going to perhaps come back to that one a little later as well. I want to speak today to what I believe is an increasing danger in the current church. Many struggle to understand the Old Testament. That's okay. I struggle to understand the Old Testament. 
But what is not okay is to do away with the Old Testament. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, if we say that we do not believe in the account... If we say that we do not believe in the account of creation or in Abraham as a person, if we do not believe that the law was given by God to Moses, if we say that, we're in fact flatly contradicting everything our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, said about himself, the law, and the prophets. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote those words about 60 years ago when his contemporaries were starting to question the historicity of the first five books of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, the erosion has continued. Uh, Two to three years ago, I was discussing my faith with an agnostic colleague, and he showed me this book. Someone had given it to him, and, and he wanted my thoughts on it. This book tries to tear the foundation out of the first 14 books of the Old Testament. I read it. It was very creative. It lacked any real substance. I wrote a critique. I sat down to chat with my colleague uh, about the book. And at the end, I asked him, why did Pete give you this book? You see, I was puzzled because I knew Pete. Pete was very religiously observant. Pete was talking about things of faith with this chap as well. I thought Pete was trying to take this chap in the same direction that I was trying to take this chap. My agnostic colleague looked at me and responded, I don't know. It seems like he's trying to score an own goal. Um, Now, some of you are going to be shaking your heads and saying, oh dear, where has liberal Christianity gone? But the question that we need to answer today is, where are we? Are we staying? Are we going? Have we gone? So the first point that I want to drive home from this section of Scripture this morning is a reminder that Jesus endorsed the Old Testament. He quotes from it broadly. He quotes from it as truth. He quotes from it as, a, as an authoritative. Uh, sorry, he quotes from it as authoritative. And he says that the scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35. We need to be very wary of, of when people start saying things that sound really pious but subtly undermine the integrity of the Old Testament. We need to be wary of people who say, you know, the scriptures contain some truth. Or the scriptures are true as men and women encounter them meaningfully. No, the scriptures are all truth and always truth. We need to be very wary of sayings like, well, this is what the Bible says, but science says otherwise. That's like the youngin who was so emphatic that salt cannot lose its saltiness. All the while, he was completely ignorant that 70% of Red Sea salt, does, Dead Sea salt, uh, consists of compounds that he has never even heard of. We need to be very aware of teachings that claim to respect the Old Testament, yet go like this. The purpose of Genesis is to teach us about God. Genesis says A and B happened. This teaches us C about God. The point is C. It doesn't actually matter whether or not A and B happened. The point is C. Well, no, you can't go one way without going the other, right? That's only logical. You've already nodded your heads to this one. These are a package deal. You can't take one without the other. To illustrate the point, imagine you you go to your friends and you tell them, I am the greatest fisherman alive. I caught a barramundi the size of a horse in Kubi Dam. 
And of course, we all know that there aren't actually any barra in Kuby Dam. It's far too cold for them. But you know, I needed to tell you that. I needed to tell you that so that you would understand that I am the greatest fisherman alive. It doesn't even actually matter if I've caught any fish. It wouldn't go down well for you, would it? Would it? I think, uh, look, at best I'd probably just laugh at you. Um, <clears throat> it is sad that biblical inerrancy has come under assault, even, even at times within the evangelical church, those who have historically so prided themselves on their scriptural foundation. And as we read the Old Testament, we need to remind ourselves of these words of Jesus. As we read each sentence of it, we need to remember that Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now we must ask, and it is a very big question, how does Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? This is a very good question, and if you're secretly asking yourself this right now, don't be embarrassed, okay? After all, Jesus did abolish the food laws. Isn't temple worship now redundant? Doesn't Romans say that Christ is the end of the law? Well, yes, Romans does say that Christ is the end of the law. But when it says, sorry, but when Jesus says of himself that he is the fulfillment of the law, it doesn't mean that he perpetuates the law, but rather that he is its final destination. And this is in perfect harmony with Romans 10.4. Christ is the end or goal of the law. It's its final destination, as it were. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers about four weeks ago, Matt sort of uh, took us on a brief little explanation of the Greek word telos, end or goal. Uh, and that's actually, that's actually the word here in Romans 10.4, just for trivia's purpose. Uh, but So Jesus doesn't perpetuate it, but more, nor does he abolish it but rather he fulfills it. Galatians describes the law as our guardian that was given to guide us to Christ. So how is Jesus then fulfilling the law? In one sense, Christ fulfills the law by upholding the law. He didn't actually break the law. He upheld the law. Only Christ was able to meet the requirements of the law. In so doing, he fulfills its demands. And then as we are in Christ, so too do we fulfill the law. This is the essence of Romans 8, 3 to 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, uh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Christ does fulfill the law by upholding it. But to truly understand Matthew 5.17, we need to understand how the Old Testament points towards the new covenant found in Christ. Christ does more than just fulfill the law by perfectly obeying it. He fulfills it in that he was the one to whom it pointed. If we read Matthew 11, it reads, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And, and in one sense, we need to recognize that the law is prophesying, it is foretelling the coming of Christ. It's very easy to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We can see that. It's very easy to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of, of our Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. These are examples of direct predictions that Christ fulfills. 
But what about Hosea 11.1? Out of Egypt I called my son. The Gospel of Matthew relates this to Jesus. But in the context, we might well assume that it's describing the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt. Reading the verse in full, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And if you were to assume that this verse details an event in the history of Israel, you'd be right. It does. But the history of Israel, the story of the Old Testament, whether it's the desert wanderings of the Exodus, whether it's the stipulations for temple worship, whether it's the foretelling prophecies found in the book of Daniel, they all find fulfillment in Christ. That's a very big idea and it would take a lot to unpack it in detail and, and unfortunately can't do that today. By the end of the sermon, you'll be glad that I didn't go into more detail, perhaps. Um, but if this is something that you would like to explore further, I want to say this with all seriousness, if this is something that you'd like to explore further, this can become a sticking point for some people. Uh, please have a chat with some of us afterwards. We'd love to sit down with you and explore this with you further. Uh, time doesn't give us much opportunity today. I often consider what a blessing it would have been to be on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples as Jesus opened the scriptures and showed the disciples all the ways that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Moving on to verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We've seen that uh, Jesus obeys the law. He fulfills it um, by obedience. We've seen that he is the fulfillment of it and that it points to him. And now as we get to verse 19, we see that even as Jesus, sorry, even as the law points to Jesus and finds its end or goal in Jesus, it nevertheless continues in a way through Jesus. Some have tried to position Jesus in stark contrast to the law. Obedience, that's so Old Testament, they might say. For the law came through Moses, they quote, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And they put a full stop and they leave it there. It is true that the law has ceased with the coming of Christ, but as the law was a foretaste of righteousness, so Christ, in Christ, we get the fulfillment of righteousness. As the law called for obedience, now Jesus calls for obedience. The law was the entree, entree, sorry. Christ is the main course. The law says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, do not even look lustfully at a woman. The law says, do not murder. Jesus says, do not even be angry. Friends, if you're looking for a religion of anything goes, this isn't the religion for you. Jesus isn't for you. But if you're looking for righteousness, if you hunger and thirst for it, then Jesus is the very one that you are seeking. So Jesus warns the would-be citizens of his kingdom that they are not to relax the laws and the norms of his kingdom. Uh, next week, God willing, Matt's going to start to preach through some of the, the things that follow in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to realise that obedience is a very high calling. It is an impossible calling, to be fair. We cannot attain it. We rejoice in the gospel knowing that Christ has attained it on our behalf. But here we are warned, do not relax what Jesus teaches, not for yourself and not for others. In my younger years, I, I helped out with our church youth group at a previous church. 
And uh, I remember one night we, we broke up the kids into small groups and, and each of us leaders took a bunch of kids and we opened up the scriptures and we started to read them with them. And, and I read something that Jesus said and I asked the kids, what does this mean? And uh, one particularly astute youth grouper put up his hand and he said, well, surely it means this. And uh, it was a good answer. He'd got it 80% of the way there. He hadn't said anything wrong. But his answer had fallen just a little bit shy of the true radical requirements that Jesus was on that occasion giving. I felt inadequate because, because I felt my own shortcomings. I knew that I could never live up to the ideal that Jesus was here expressing. And I knew that the answer that the kid had given was indeed the answer that many people gave concerning this teaching. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard to teach a hard command. And it becomes a little bit more palatable if you just cut the margin off it. I nodded silently, implicitly accepting his answer, not correcting him, and I moved on. Sometimes later, sorry, sometime later, the youth grouper came up to me and he said, when Jesus said that, he meant more than the answer that I gave, didn't he? And I said, yeah. And he turned to me and he said, why didn't you pull me up on it? I'm going to have to give an answer uh, for that question one day before God. Um, as you go through life, in your interactions with friends, in your interactions with yourself, in your interactions with kids, and you are confronted by the radical requirements of righteousness that Jesus puts forward, aspire to them, and even when you can't attain them, never reduce them. Righteousness is not something that we can attain, and when you have reduced your definition of righteousness to what is attainable, then you, can be know, then you can know for certain that your definition of righteousness is now radically different from God's definition of righteousness. And even if you can't attain his standard, we must accept his standard and we must hold out his definition of righteousness. We must hold that out as the example to ourselves and we must hold that out as the example to others. Whatever your situation in life, there's going to be some application in this for you whether it's the discussions that you have with your friends where they are struggling with sins that you yourself struggle with. We don't patronise one another by just accepting the difficulty of it. We call each other forward. If we're parents, our kids know all our faults. And they are so many. And yet we have the challenge that we still need to point our children to the righteousness that Jesus gives, not our standard of righteousness. And when it's it's when we appreciate God's definition of righteousness that we truly become poor in spirit. And Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to encourage you today to continue to aspire to the standards that Jesus set. Oh, I've gone too far. And now we come to our final verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does this verse make you feel uncomfortable? Perhaps rightly so. It's given to us as a warning, and it is a very weighty warning. 
does this verse suggest that we must earn our salvation? No. Uh, but it's akin to what James says. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If your belief has not changed you, then you do not truly believe. What you have is not true faith, at least not true biblical faith in that situation. I think we sometimes have a tendency to, to skim quite quickly over verses like these. Either we're not quite sure of their implication or we're quite sure that we're not comfortable with their implication. When you read this verse, I want you to be reminded that an appreciation of the omnipotence of God, the all-powerfulness of God, must lead you to believe that God not only has the power to redeem you, but also to transform you. And if the latter is not happening, well, then one must consider whether or not the former has actually ever taken place. If one cannot see a, a sprout appearing above the ground, one assumes that the seed below the ground has not germinated. The first thing, uh, when, a, when a seed germinates and strikes root, a leaf is soon to follow, right? And when you cannot see the evidence of that working out, you start to question whether or not there's anything going on below the soil. So as you go in your Christian walk, make sure that you grasp in one hand the doctrine of your depravity. You are saved by grace, full stop. There's nothing more to it than that. And in the other hand, grasp the doctrine of God's sanctification. He will not leave you as you are. Grasp the one and the other. Grasp them both and don't let go of either of them. What shall we say then as we seek to sum up these verses? These verses provide us with a beautiful promise, namely that we who adorn Christ are the salt of the earth. <clears throat> we are the light of the world. And this promise comes with a warning. Don't go backwards. We are distinctive. And we must never lose that distinctiveness. We must never hide it either. And in your day-to-day -day life, you need to let this distinctiveness show. It comes with the encouragement to go forwards, to continue to be distinctive, to continue to adorn the character of Christ, to practice the norms of the kingdom. We as a church should be those who rejoice in mercy and peace, who fill ourselves with meekness and with purity. For this pleases God and it brings him glory. These verses also provide us with a beautiful reassurance Jesus does not contradict God's earlier self-revelation through the Old Testament. He completes God's self-revelation. He is in complete continuity with the Old Testament. As one early church father put it, the New Testament is latent in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is patent in the New Testament. I'm not sure how he got his English so beautiful when he was uh, not speaking English, but I quite like that. These verses show us that the demands of Christ are radical but they are not to be lessened and they're not to be ignored. I want to read an excerpt from a, a biography that I recently read on Richard Wormbrand. He was a Jew who lived in Europe during the troubled uh, 20th century. And he'd come to the rather uncomfortable conclusion that the Old Testament does indeed point forward to Jesus. He was still somewhat reluctant to act out his conviction in that regard. He was quite troubled uh, by some of the the implications that that choice would have. And so he goes to speak with Isaac. Isaac was a, a Jewish Christian pastor in a nearby town. 
And Isaac had been praying for Richard. Richard comes to him uh, a bit depressed and he, and he blurts out, the demands of Christianity are too extreme. They're impossible to fulfill, he told Isaac. It's written in the Bible that, that he who says he is Christ's must also live as Jesus lived, but that's impossible. Some consider that Jesus came and he preached love and thereby he softened the standards of obedience. Actually, Jesus came and he preached love and thereby he heightens the standards of obedience. Finally, we arrive at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you can only remember two points from today's message, I want you to remember, firstly, to always respect the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Jesus did. And secondly, I want you to remember never to shortchange God's potential to change you. Don't let your doctrine of sanctification finish with atonement, but with regeneration. Reject the notion that Christians are just like all the other sinners out there, only they have found grace. In terms of salvation, this is 100% true, okay? We are only saved by grace. But Christ does not leave us there. We all come to Christ in the same state of total depravity. But Christ wants to transform us. He wants to reform us. He teaches us to obey his commands. And his commands are good. They are a blessing for the soul. And so he takes us from depravity to obedience. And then he takes us still further. He changes our very hearts. He causes us to grow in love to desire obedience, to grow in virtue. The inner attitudes of our heart are transformed. I want to pick up again from uh, the little story of Richard and Isaac talking. Isaac shook his head. Don't allow yourself to be guided by what you see because it is possible that you do not see very well. Only a very proud person could imagine it is possible for him to live like Jesus. As you get to know Jesus better, the more you'll be able to reflect his love. That is the only hope any of us have. We should daily polish our hearts by concentrated meditation and by death. Then the beauty of Jesus will be reflected in us. Is that true? Is it possible that as we come to Christ and he reforms us, that we will indeed start to reflect something of his nature. That conversation between Richard and Isaac happened 14th of September 1937 in Romania. Richard accepted the call of Christ upon his life shortly after. He decided to become a committed follower of Jesus. Four years later... In June 1941, uh, Isaac travels from his hometown of Yassi down to Bucharest to visit Richard, and the two of them talk about a number of things. And then Richard shares with him his fear that the Jews in Yassi are soon to be rounded up. I'm going to pick up again from later in the book.
You know what? I've lost my place. That's all right. Luckily, I keyed the words down earlier. I was worried I'd forget the book, not lose my place. It turns out the flimsy bookmark I used was not good enough. Richard has just warned Isaac about the possible danger of returning to Yasi. We are considering that Jesus calls us and he calls us to be transformed. Isaac had earlier told Richard that as we meditate upon Jesus, as we commit ourselves to Jesus, it is possible that our lives will start to reflect something of Jesus. So Richard warns Isaac about the danger of returning to Yasi. And Isaac responds, I don't doubt what you're saying, Isaac said, shaking his head with sadness. But before anything else, I'm the shepherd of my flock. I know my duty is to stay with them and to lay down my life if necessary. Are you sure? Richard asked. I'm sure, Isaac replied. Please pray for me and my family. The next day, Isaac returned to Yasi. Three days later, the roundup began. I'll spare you the details, but amidst the darkness and the moral decay, Isaac was salt and light, and he was powerfully so. His righteousness surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees. He had been transformed. His character had been transformed by Jesus. That is not innate to who we are. We are not like that. We don't return to Yasi, but Jesus does. And then Isaac was called home to be with his Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't tell you this story in closing to depress you, but I, but I tell you it to give you hope, to give you hope that our sinful, wicked selves can indeed, can indeed be transformed by the power of God, and God wants to transform us. This is not who we are, but Christ can work this change in our life. This is the glorious hope, or a glorious hope, of the path of sanctification that we have started on. Let us pray. Father, that you would send your son to die for us. It is more than we could hope or imagine. That you might graciously work to sanctify us, to regenerate us. It's for this that we hunger and thirst. Continue this work in us. O oh Lord, because we want to be for your glory. Amen.